So today is our program with Mike Gebbard. I've known Mike probably what, 15 years. Well, no, it all depends on when Monica Eng wrote that article for the Chicago Tribune um, on the 24-hour-a-thon. And, and I recognized one person in the article, that was Joan, who didn't want her last name given out, but it was Joan the pastry chef. Well, there was only one Joan the pastry chef I knew, that was Joan Hirsch. And, and so the next time I met her at a culinary historians meeting, I had the newspaper with me and I go, is this you? She goes, yes. And I started reading um, Chowhound at the time, Chicago Board, and it was like, ooh, I have found my friends, my new friends. But I read and read and read for like about three weeks or a month before I finally got up the nerve to ask a question. And I believe my question was related to Uncle Remus and whether or not the chicken was any good. And I think the person, <laughs> is it, was it? You, 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 you looked me up? Oh, you went to one. Oh, it's good? Because I think it's one of those places, you know, like Song of the South is one of those Disney films that they try to hide now. And uh, it's not been in video, I think. It's because there's the, you know, and Uncle Remus is one of those people. And then you have an Uncle Remus chicken place here in Chicago and no problems. But anyway, and that was my first little dive into the world of the food because I've been going to culinary historians for at least seven years at the time. And I always thought with culinary historians, I would find people who would want to go out to eat and discuss the English pea. I know, I know that's really strange, but I had read this article about English peas and there was this pea that was very dominant like about 300 years ago and everybody ate this pea and then it's like vanished. I don't know why, but I wanted to have discussions with people about this English pea, and I've yet to have a discussion with anybody about this English pea. But it was a pretty nice group, but you had to know your stuff. And if you didn't know your stuff, you could get really overwhelmed pretty quick. And, and I always, and, and, and since then, we kind of got escorted off in a sense, chowhound. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. Okay, but nonetheless, nonetheless, we were part of the founding team for LTH Forum. Yes. Which I would say were the people who ate with Gary Wiviet at the time, mostly. Not exactly how I Okay, no, you phrase it your way, I'll, don't worry. I'm trying not to completely. David Hanson, Oh, okay, okay, that's another way of looking at it. That's all true, that's all true. And uh, Peter Engler, who's not here today, um, he would have been, but he quickly realized this is not for his personality and, re and declined to be on LTH, the founding thing. He declined to be a cop, yes. So we were people who would get knocked off of Chowhound for saying something that they didn't think was right. And sometimes it was not Jermaine to Chicago. That was the... There that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. That's okay. Can I just say something else about you? I'm, I'm <laughs> eager to see how this comes to me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite holiday? Oh, uh, April Fool's. Yes, yes. Uh, some, I heard someone once call Halloween the gay Christmas, <laughs> and so April Fool's is my gay Christmas. Just, it's a chance to celebrate the holiday by coming up with something completely preposterous. 
like the time that I made models of trilobites and went to Dirk Fish on a fiveboard and he made a little sign for them and we put them in the fish cage. And then I spray painted one of them red and showed what it looked like after I boiled it. Yeah, very creative guy. Very creative guy. But the other part you're probably not going to mention, but I'm going to do it for you. What a terrific dad you are. Right? I mean, you Well, no, it's not. I'm glad your family's here. I might have said more, but I don't want to get into trouble because my version of the story could be different from yeah, your version of the story. My, my history of writing about where I went to eat is also the history of my kids growing up. So I'm just saying that you're often with me, and, and a lot of it has to do with what they would actually tell me. So. Well, that's a pretty good test audience. Yeah. All right, Mike, so I'll leave you to tell your story, and I'll sit in the back going, what? I don't agree. But it doesn't matter. It's a good story in any case. So my talk today is on the history of the English P. And <laughs> now, so I have, I have a book, The Food Order 99. How I got there, I guess, is the story. It's a thin book. When, I, when Kathy asked me to do this, I thought, that's going to be a, maybe a 10-minute talk. What do you want me to do for the rest of the time? So uh, she said, well, just talk about how you, you know, how you became a food writer, the evolution of food, and I'm happy to talk about the, uh, the kind of the sociology of food media, which has changed drastically a good four or five times in the, the time that I've had anything to do with it. So we'll, we'll talk about that and how we got here and all those kind of things. And eventually get back to the fact that I wrote a guidebook and why I think guidebooks are a good thing and all that. Um, so the story starts in Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas is famous for having given the world no less than two iconic fast food chains. Uh, White Castle, which was really the first uh, hamburger chain back in the 20s, and Pizza Hut, which was really the first national pizza chain in the 1950s. My dad actually went to Catholic high school with the two brothers, Frank and Dan Carney, who started Pizza Hut. He did not invest in it, and we did not get rich. In fact, in fact we missed two opportunities to make big money off Pizza Hut because years later, I was Dan Carney's paper boy, and his German shepherd bit me on the butt once, and I did not get Pizza Hut stock out of that. I think I got... Uh, a glass of Kool-Aid and an offer to call my mom to come pick me up or something like that. Um, anyway, but I uh, grew up in Wichita. Wichita in many ways, extremely, a very, it's the middle of the country in so many ways. It's very median on many measures and for that reason it's used a lot for test marketing, fast food concepts, either new foods or uh, entire chains or things like that. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't completely, you know, boring and middle American. Um, we, you know, for some reason there was, there was a good-sized Lebanese population there going back into the 19th century. I'm not quite sure what the story is of, you know, Lebanese loading up their covered wagon and coming to Kansas. But they were there, and so, you know, they had a lot of restaurants and would grow up eating you know, for something different, we'd go have, you know, falafel and tabbouleh and things like that. 
Um, in the 1970s, Catholic Relief Services settled a lot of the Vietnamese boat people in Kansas. If you happen to go to a meatpacking plant out in western Kansas, that's pretty much who the entire staff is. So uh, we started to have that kind of authentic Asian food in Wichita. Not that any of us knew what it was or how to eat it or anything, but it was something more authentic than you know the mugu gai pan with the rye bread that uh, you would get from the Chinese, uh, the Chinese American Chinese restaurant. The rye bread with Chinese food was an interesting thing. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Who's had rye bread with Chinese food? This is apparently a New York thing, and it's part of that weird connection between Jewish people and, and Chinese food. Um, but I would read references to it in Mad Magazine, and it was perfectly normal to me in Kansas. And I get up here to Chicago, and I say, oh, so do, we don't get rye bread at this place? Bread with why would you get rye bread with Chinese? That's great. What? What? Do you, where do you think you are? It's like, well, so apparently our our beloved Alberts, the famous Chinese place in Wichita that we all ordered from, they came from New York, I guess. That's where it came from. But uh, anyway, uh, so you know, there was there was a certain food culture to be found if you were curious about finding it. Uh, you know, my parents were pretty cosmopolitan about that stuff. My mom watched Julia Child and. Galloping Gourmet. Um, uh, there was a cookbook writer named Michael Field. Anybody remember Michael Field? Joan does. Um, died fairly young. I, I, he, was a, he, he edited the whole Time Life series. I have a feeling maybe, you know, uh, amphetamines had something to do with getting that project done or something like that. But uh, anyway, he... Uh, but I just remember he was one that my mom really liked and that you know, the, the food culture that came filtered through his books particularly seemed to be in our house. He's kind of forgotten now, but, uh, you know, seems to have been an influence for us then. Anyway, so I always had this idea of, you know, I just, it was one of those things I wanted to find out about. I wanted to, you know, when I got out of college, uh, I wanted to move to a bigger city and just experience all the things that big cities had, but food was a big part of it. And, and as soon as I had a job, in advertising in Wichita and was making a very teeny amount of money. I'd spent it to travel and have these kinds of experiences that I couldn't have in Wichita. Went to New York, you know, searched, trying to find what's like the best value for having some experience of high-end food that, you know, I mean, I wasn't going to go drop two months' salary at Lutece or something back then, but, uh, you know, find something that that kind of gave me a glimpse of that world for real. And I wound up, uh, you remember Windows on the World, the fancy restaurant in the World Trade Center? Well, the World Trade Center, as you will recall, was basically square in its footprint, which meant there was only so many tables that could go by the windows. Kitchen was in the middle, I'm sure. But they had a place called Cellar in the Sky, where they made a virtue out of the lack of windows by putting you in the basically in the wine cellar, a little intimate restaurant in the wine cellar. So that was like the deal to be had in, in New York fine dining at that point, as far as I could tell. So I went there and I had things I'd never seen before, like sweetbreads and a fish called Turbo, which did not swim in Kansas and things like that. Um, so that was, that was the exposure to that end. I also came to Chicago around that time. I didn't try to eat high-end Chicago food. Instead, here I really experienced, you know, some of those 
you know, the famous things you'd heard about, like, you know, in Chicago, they have this pizza that's really thick, and they have this thing called an Italian beef that no one in Italy has ever heard of, and things like that. And, but it was experiencing that, that, you know, the rootedness of food culture there, that it grew out of these ethnic neighborhoods that had food traditions of their own, and, you know, that it could change in just a few blocks. Uh, one of the ones I always marvel at, there's a, a thing called... Uh, a uh, breaded steak sandwich. Who's had a breaded steak sandwich? Where did you have it? Bridgeport? Pretty much you had to have it in Bridgeport because it's nowhere else. It's literally this thing that just exists in a very small section of Chicago. I'm sure, you know, there's probably the odd hot dog stand or something, Rich, that, uh, that, that might offer it. But it really is a, it's a Bridgeport specialty. You drive through there, you'll see it advertised on the sign, and it just doesn't exist anywhere else. And that, that kind of thing is always fascinating to me, that you could have all these little food e ecosystems within a big city. Um, so, let's see. So that was all very interesting to me. The question is, how do you find these things? You know, and this is obviously years before the internet. It's, you know, how do you know about these things? I think, um, you know, the, the one food writer that I was really reading at that time was Calvin Trillin. And we know how he found things in Chicago because he wrote about it. Uh, in one of the stories that in Alice Let's Eat, he talks about coming to Chicago and being taken to a Korean restaurant that still exists up on Lincoln Avenue called Cho Sun Ok by uh, a man, anyone know who the, the resident expert who would know what Korean restaurant to take you to back in the 70s would have been? I've been going there since that 70s, and my family That's right, oh, you were down, the, yeah, the Lambert thing was down the street. Well, um, there was a guy named James McCauley. He was a uh, linguistics professor at the Uni University of Chicago. And before the internet or any of this talking about food, he kept this list of his recommended restaurants of all these different nationalities. And yeah, and it's really sad. He dropped dead at a fairly young age just before the whole internet food explosion happened, I think in 1999. And, you know, I think it would have been very different because he would have been the resident expert on so many of these things. But I think he was also someone who liked to share that information. So I think he would have been a participant as opposed to like lording it over everybody or anything like that. But, um, you know, it was interesting. I mean, this, this Xerox list of places to go before the internet, I mean, it's sort of like Samizdat, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the secret knowledge that was passed around people who knew. Um, so that's how Trillin found where to go. It's not where, how I found where to go in Chicago. Um, it would, never would have occurred to me to contact some guy at UFC out of the blue and say, hey, you want to go get Korean food with me? A totally random person from Kansas uh, when, uh, when I come visit? Uh, the reality is he probably would have gone along, but uh, in any case, I didn't know about, you know, the idea that he was a real person that I could have contacted never would have occurred to me then. And... So, you know, you just, you found out information where you could. And one of the big ways that you found out inf information was from guidebooks. I'm going to sneak over here for a second and get my water. To me, guidebooks are kind of the, the underappreciated 
art form of food writing. You won't win prizes or get a lot of attention for writing guidebooks. You know, you, you tend to be, you tend to have to write some sort of highfalutin, you know, Laurie Colwin type essay about, you know, the deep memories of food. Basically, you just, you know, plumb your memories and talk about how, you know, there's, there was a piece that came out recently and it's in Best Food Writing of 2017, although I think it could equally be in Worst Food Writing of 2017 or Most Overwriting of 2017, about the deep memories that you got, that someone got from Olive Garden. And it's just like, at that point, you know, why are we, why are we talking about food anymore? It's just, it's just wallowing in, in nostalgia, it seems to me. But uh, that sort of thing, you know, that sort of essay is, is what you get the attention for. But I find guidebooks much more interesting, especially as time goes by, because they are a picture of the time, a picture of what people valued then, of what they thought was interesting then, and the quotidian details in them have so much interest for me. I mean, that's, that's where you really see a picture of a time and place. And the Ur guidebook in Chicago is a book called Dining in Chicago by John Drury, published in 1931 in anticipation of the uh, uh, Century of Progress exposition in 1933-34. And it's just page after page of this vision of what Chicago was like then. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read one that I always like. Uh, it's a place called Strulovitz Tea House, which was near Maxwell Street, uh, the area that was then known uh, indelicately by modern standards as Jewtown. And here's, here's what Dre says about it. Meet Papa Elias Strulovitz, proprietor of one of the most interesting Jewish restaurants in town. Papa Elias comes from Romania, and his establishment is a mixture of Jewish cafe, Russian tea house, and American restaurant, all rolled into one, which gives it a unique atmosphere. His wife and his sister-in-law do the cooking, and how they can cook. The food is plain, fresh, wholesome, kosher, and served in a most palatable style. And you can get all forms of continental dishes here, from Russian kasha and Romanian steaks to Jewish gefulte fish, with an umlaut, and chicken blintzes. Before Papa Elias moved to this roomy street corner restaurants a few months ago, he served his meals in his little west side home a short distance on, away on Sangamon Street. There came the bon vivant and diners out of the town. Francis Coughlin, then on the staff of the Chicagoan. John Landesco, the Romanian criminologist. Morris Topchevsky, the painter, the Romanian consul, students from the various universities, and lots of other interesting people who like good foods. Who wouldn't want to dine with the Romanian consul and Topchevsky, the painter, and, and uh, Romanian criminologists? I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful world that it sums up. I, there's another one where he, he mentions that a place was a favorite of Tene Bimbo, the gypsy king. It's like, which he was, in fact, uh, the Gypsy King. Um, if you remember, there's a bestseller in the 70s called King of the Gypsies, which is the story of when Tenny passed over his own son to his grandson to make him the next, basically, godfather of the Gypsies. Um, but anyway, I mean, what, what a glorious world that just, you know, doesn't compare to saying that it was a favorite of you know, Richard Noderberg, CEO of Ameritech or something like that. It just doesn't have the same color to it. Um, 
So that's what I like about, about guidebooks. I mean, I just, they're, they're very practical, they're very real, and if they're done well, I mean, a lot of times they're sort of personality-free, unfortunately. A certain one put out by a tire company comes to mind, but the good ones have a lot of flavor to them. And when I went to New York, one of the ones I used, you know, there are many choices I could have picked for New York, his Fodor's, I don't think the Michelin Red Guide wasn't published in America then, but the Green Guide was, there you know, things I could have gotten. But I settled on one, I don't know if anyone remembers this, Gomio. It was a, it was a French rival to Michelin that was published in America 70s through 90s maybe, something like that, and it was just, it was a little snarkier, it was, a, it was more, um, you know, it could be more critical or it could be more enthusiastic than the sort of even keel that Michelin liked to take. But I also really liked about it was they would push things up and down year to year. Michelin tends to move at a glacial pace. I mean, if you start going downhill, they, Michelin wants assurance. They want to send you to Chicago and everything you try is going to be very, very reliable. And they don't promote anybody any too quickly and they don't drop anybody any too quickly. And it's all this sort of illusion that, you know, restaurants, can maintain this level like an ocean liner and calm seas forever. Well, restaurants aren't like that at all. Restaurants change all the time. Every night is a performance. Every night could be something different. And I like Gomeo for the fact that they sort of recognized that. They accepted that the world turned over faster than, you know, than Michelin liked to pretend that it did. So I think, you know, I've been kind of influenced in a lot of ways by the things that I you know, guidebooks that I read then. Gomio's a little cheekier and snarkier attitude toward it. Some of the other books that I picked up around then once I moved to Chicago, Chicago Magazine had a, had a guide that, that went through a lot of the neighborhoods, although I later realized, you know, this is the 70s and 80s, and there, there are certain neighborhoods that you didn't want to be responsible for sending anyone to back then. And so, you know, their, their guide to the neighborhoods left large parts of the city out. Uh, there was a guide called Cheap Chow Chicago. Anybody ever have that one? Uh, Rich did. And, uh, you know, that was a, that was a good one that, that really prized, the, again, that, that sort of ethnic food, the, the, the low-level, blue-collar kind of foods that were in the various neighborhoods. And all of that just encouraged me to go out and explore the city as best I could. You know, often I didn't have a car yet and there were parts that I was kind of afraid to go to and things like that. But still, I mean, I tried to get out there. My poor wife remembers that we, I would drag her t for like Korean food and they're setting out the little dishes of panchan and I have no idea what most of them are and at least one of them has little eyes and you know, all these things. And we're like, what do we do with this? You know, and you don't want to be rude, you want to be appreciative, you want them to be glad you came to their restaurant, but at the same time you have no idea what any of it is and how you're supposed to eat it or if it's a condiment or maybe for cleaning your teeth after, who knows. And uh, <clears throat> so it was, it was very hard to, you know, being adventurous in a vacuum like that without other people was, could be very hard and there weren't that many books that could guide you. Um, but I did the best I could. Let's see. Um, 
And, you know, as I said, the, the media tended to be sort of fixed on a small area of the city. There, there were some things, I mean, like Monica Eng would go out and write a Cheap Eats column once in a while. But on the whole, I mean, it, it's sort of the restaurant scene in Chicago as seen through the major media tended to be, you know, they, they covered the full ground from 60601 to 60614 and then maybe picked up again in Evanston or something like that. There wasn't a lot of, uh, there just wasn't a lot of adventurous, you know, adventuring beyond kind of the upscale restaurant world which pretty much ran from downtown to Lincoln Park. Um, So this is, this is the pre-internet era. Now we get to what Kathy was, was talking about um, with Chowhound. So when my son Liam here was born, uh, he was in the hospital, the children's hospital for a few weeks. And the only th we, we would trade off going there, you know, staying over each night. And the only thing to do for like a little break from that was to run out for 20 minutes and grab something to eat. And otherwise, you had a lot of time to sort of contemplate things like what you just went out and got to eat. And I came to the conclusion that I had to stop eating in Lincoln Park. That it was just not, there was a, it was just not an interesting area. It didn't represent the city well. And that I, I should be, you know, I should explore the city more. Okay, well that was a nice, nice ambition. Might or might not have gone anywhere except for the fact that a few years or a few weeks later, uh, right around the end of, of 2001, Calvin Trillin popped up again in an article that he wrote for The New Yorker talking about this thing in New York called Chowhound, uh, where people would go out and eat and then report back on what they ate. And it's interesting, I mean, he, he sees, you know, that it has a lot of the same virtues he had about wanting to share what you found out there. But there was also a lot of sort of New York one-upsmanship in it. He, sa he said that the quintessential chowhound conversation tended to be, the first guy says, oh, I had, you know, fantastic Uzbek dumplings at this place. And the second guy goes and tries them and says, you know, they were pretty good. They weren't as good as the ones at this place. But, uh, and then the first guy says, you went on a Tuesday? when the grandmother's not there? Didn't you know? You'd never go on Tuesday. So that was kind of the quintessential conversation. I think in Chicago we were much nicer about that on the whole. It's not to say that there wasn't some of that from time to time, but we were more, you know, the, the guy who founded Chowhound, Jim Leff, his ideal dinner, I think, really was that he went anonymously, picked up food in a styrofoam container, and then went home and typed what he was thinking about it as he ate it by himself. And we were much more social, uh, basically because it, it enabled us to, you know, six people to go and order food for 13, and not, and no one's gonna shame anybody else about it. So uh, that typically became, you know, what we called ordering power. The more people, the better, because you could just keep ordering and ordering and eating and eating. And eventually we kind of, that became a clash between us, you know, treating it as more of a social club and left, you know, as, as an anthropologist of food, I guess is what he is, you know, or Star Trek not wanting to, you know, the prime directive is not to interfere with the culture of the planet that you've beamed down to to try their dumplings. But um, so 
we broke off, we founded LTH Farm, as Kathy says, and it was kind of the perfect moment for that. There were so many things that were good about it. I was talking with uh, Rob Gardner, another one of the people who founded it at one time, about what really, you know, why, why we all took off with it and had a pretty good sized crowd that took off with it, you know, in short order. His theory was that it coincided with when everybody got rid of dial-up internet and had uh, like DSL or, or something because it meant it was always on. If you, you know, you would feel more guilty about going on 86 times a day if you had to like sit there and choose to dial on and listen to it and make all the noises and all that. But when it's right there, hey, you're working on, so I can just go check and see if anybody's responded to my question and then you're lost for a half hour on it. Um, my theory was also that, you know, being after 9-11, after you know, a lot of us, were people who worked at home. We had freelance, maybe, but that kind of dried up for a few months. It was just, you know, all that stuff got kind of quiet. So we would, uh, you know, it was a really good time to go eat really cheap meals and then come back and spend two hours analyzing them on the internet. So for all those reasons, it took off. And over time, it was interesting what happened. Uh, the media started, you know, the mainstream media in Chicago, the food media, being particularly the, the Tribune, Sun-Times, Reader, the things that existed then, Time Out, which appeared around that time. Um, first, they kind of stole from us. There were a few times that whatever was the hot new thing we talked about on LTH, then someone else would basically write up a lot of that info and collect the $100 for having done so or something like that. And we were sort of like, hey, that was us who found all that. Um, and then they started asking us to do it. And it was interesting. I had kind of a, a negative reaction against that at first, which was that, you know, in advertising, I had people who would edit my copy and they would change things all around and make me rewrite it 18 times. And, you know, this writing about food stuff was my hobby. The last thing I needed was anybody editing my hobby and making me rewrite that stuff a bunch of times. It was, it was the way I liked it. So don't mess with it. Back off. But um, eventually, it seemed to me that, you know, if these people are asking to do, you know, for us to do this, you know, kind of stupid not to take advantage of it, get a little higher profile and stuff like that. So that was kind of the, the beginning of that. And I decided at some point to try really to be an actual food writer, not just a guy on a, uh, you know, on a website chatting with my friends. And then it was a matter of, you know, well, how do, I, how do I think about how to create a brand, raise my profile, all those things. And I decided on a few different things. I mean, first off, it was a problem being named Michael because two of the best, best known food writers in the city were Mike Sula and Michael Nagrant. So I'm the third. So I created a site called uh, Sky Full of Bacon, which seemed like a catchy name and something that, that would give me a name that could stand out there. Secondly, um, I thought, well, lots of people write. What do I do that people don't do? And I had actually made, with other LTHers, I had made a documentary about eating at Maxwell Street. And we just went around to the different stands, tried the mostly Mexican food, 
And you know, just and that one really just happened because I had a camera, and because I had a new baby, so I had a you know a video camera like all parents do, and after a while you realize that just filming your bang, baby laying there is not the most compelling thing ever put on film, so uh, so I made a documentary about Maxwell Street, and so I, des I decided when I decided to go after it more seriously to really focus on making you know, kind of high-end documentaries of this cultural scene in Chicago, of these different cultures that were out there. Usually short, I, my goal was to keep them to like about 10 to 15 minutes. They tended to creep longer over time, but, um, you know, just capturing, capturing those different subcultures, those little ecosystems throughout Chicago. And I have a clip of one. This is called uh, The Last Days of Kugelis. There's a restaurant, a Lithuanian restaurant called Healthy Food down in Bridgeport. And it was the last Lithuanian restaurant in the city. At one time, Chicago had a bigger Lithuanian population than any city in Lithuania. But uh, by this point, they'd pretty much assimilated, moved to the burbs, whatever. It was the, the Lithuanian community really was disappearing with this restaurant. So um, just here's a little clip that I, I love for the, you know, the, the, def the Chicago flavor that you get in the video. Any, any uh, politicians that you recognize that have come in over the years? Anybody, like either of the Mayor Dailies or anything? Mayor Daly, some of his family members have been here, and I've noticed other politicians. The first mayor was here. The first mayor. He would come in. He would come in with his family, sometimes on a Sunday morning with all the children and sis. It seems the old customers, most of them moved out of the neighborhood. The neighborhood changed quite a bit. It got more into Asian group, Spanish group. Different nationalities moved away. Now, what sort of person, besides me, of course, thinks a Kugelis t-shirt, that's what I need? Yeah, lots of people. Anybody that likes Kugelis, anybody that makes Kugelis, anybody that uh, eats. <laughs> and then I decided to make a, an item on the menu, Breakfast of Champions. So you have Kugelis and eggs. And if you want, you know, like super champions, you get a piece of sausage. That'll set you up for the whole day. Can come from from a particular place, like the sausage does, or no bacon, bacon. Salt, sugar, and some sugar in there. And it's all natural. Everything is is just all natural. No no additives, no preservatives. I'm sure the only reason that they let me film, you know, her like stirring it with her arm was because they were closing anyway, so it couldn't get them in trouble.
Um, working on the film, you know, making films was really, I think, a good preparation for writing as well because, you know, there's nowhere that you have to be more concise with what people say than on film. People are sitting there, they're looking at the same thing. If you're looking at someone talking, they better be interesting. And the moment they stop being interesting, you need to cut to something else. So I, I think I, my writing and everything got a lot out of making the videos and, and just thinking about how to shape them and make them, make them interesting. Uh, the other thing I got, which was early on, I, I had calculated that you know, where, where could I, if it, the thing that would, would give me like a, a gold standard for my name was if I could win a James Beard Award. And I thought, where's the category where there's not gonna be so much competition? And doing the video, you know, tons of, tons of writers out there, many wonderful writers, not that many people doing video. So I thought, here's something where I can, I can sort of pioneer in a, in a medium that, uh, you know, find the category that isn't, 30-minute cooking show, but other, basically. And, you know, in, in, in the early 2010s, I got nominated three times and won once. So uh, it's sort of the only time I ever made a, a conscious career ambition that paid off, possibly, uh, you know, at least in the way that I kind of expected, you know, that I, that I hoped it would. Everything else has been much more random. Um, Oh, that was actually for the, yeah, it was for the reader. It was the, we did the key ingredient series, which still goes on. It's been going on for like six years, where chefs get a weird ingredient, you know, canned pork brains or, you know, silkworms or something like that, and have to figure out how to cook something with that that's, that's reasonable. Um, and so it's got a little bit of that, you know, Food Network, weird food, game show thing. Although we do always make sure it's something that people, act, you know, someone in some culture actually eats this. So it's not just, you know, here, cook with a rock, you know, or something like that. Um, you actually have to, you have to use a, the, something that is a real food to somebody somewhere. Um, that's true. Stone, stone soup and, yeah, and the Japanese... Uh, but but then it would it still wouldn't be the ingredient though you know it's, you gotta take take a bite um, anyway the and I think they probably still speaking of uh, I think it was bamboo worms uh, the guy at uh, um, pops for champagne had to get a whole case of them in to be able to get them so I think they may still be a special there if anyone's interested. Um, no, no, Pops for Champagne, it's, it's in River North. Yeah. Um, so it was an interesting time to become a food writer because at that moment, the you know, internet food media were really taking off and there were a number of national sites that had local outposts. And I wound up taking a job for a time as the Chicago editor of Grub Street, which was one of them owned by New York Magazine. There's that, there's Eater, uh, Feast, you know, they're just, just a, a serious eats. A bunch of those popped up and had Chicago outlets for a while. And it was really kind of cool. I mean, there was, a, nobody was making very much money at it, but at least there are a lot of opportunities to get out there and have your voice. And so I did that for a couple of years. Then I think what happened really is that 
people realized that it was hard to sell local advertising for this kind of thing. The easiest thing to sell is to just sell ads to Heinz for your whole network or something like that. And a lot of these outfits that had these sites in multiple cities just dropped them outside of New York at that point. Um, they just, you know, including Grub Street. They just didn't, there wasn't enough money to be made running, you know, a food site in Louisville. Or there was room for one organization to do that, and that's Eater. They're all over the place. But otherwise, it, it, it really didn't, didn't work out. And, and it's kind of too bad. I mean, I feel like there was kind of a moment when it was on the ascendancy, and that, that moment has sort of passed, and a, a lot of people who were local food writers at that time have had to go to writing for national publications, uh, trade publications, whatever. There just isn't that sort of local coverage. And instead, what they've started creating are sort of national food sites. Uh, there's a new one that Kevin Pang, formerly of the Tribune, is now the editor of called The Takeout that's based here in Chicago. Um, there's one devoted to breakfast that's owned by Time, uh, Time Life called Extra Crispy. I'm not sure why that's breakfast. I don't, something, something changed in a meeting somewhere along the way. Um, I can't even think of all the, the, the infatuation, the, the daily meal. There's all these different sites that are around the country that are trying to sell this idea of, of sort of national restaurant coverage. And I'm convinced that it's an answer in search of a need because it's easy to sell the advertising for something national like that. I'm not convinced that there's, there are people who are willing to die. You're really dying to read about that sort of thing. Um, other than recipes, I don't know what you how you talk about food nationally because people don't share it, you know, unless it's, it's either national brands or national fast food chains. So you wind up talking about Chicago pizza. Okay, I guess there's room to be vaguely interested in one Chicago pizza article if you live on the other side of the country. But I'm not convinced that there's an, an ongoing need to read this national kind of thing. And that just bugged me. I mean, to me, the interest remains the local side of it. Uh, what's, you know, Chicago is interesting to me. Chicago is much more interesting to me than talking about Olive Garden or something like that. So um, I decided, you know, I, I, after Grub Street died, I went and wrote for the reader for a while. Then I decided to launch my own site, for better or worse, to cover what was happening in our city and really drill deep into our city. And even though the guidebook thing, to me, guidebooks sort of went out of fashion because the internet <coughs> provided so much of that information, it was still kind of that same impulse. It's like, what's going on in Pilsen in this city? What's going on in, you know, on the far southwest side where no one ever goes? And what's, you know, what's popping up in all these different parts of the city? What are the new nationalities that we have here that no one has really talked about yet? I mean, there's, if you drive around the Northwest side, there's all kinds of Ecuadorian restaurants and other kinds of South American restaurants, and there's very little writing about that. It gets even worse when you go out to the suburbs. I mean, if there's certain suburbs you drive around, you'd be amazed how, uh, ah, pulling up my site, Fooditor, um, you'd be amazed at how much you drive through Niles or you drive through Mount Prospect and you pass 
Japanese, Indian, Turkish, all these things out there, nobody writes about that. There's no coverage of what's out there at all. And to me, that's a real loss compared to where we were maybe a decade ago when that was all new and we were all excited about discovering it. And we found it on LTH Farm and the newspapers wrote about it too and, and so on. It just, I feel kind of bad that there's, there's not so much going on there. Or that there's not so much being discovered when, you know, the opportunity is certainly there to write about it, but there's just not, there kind of isn't the commercial structure to write about it. So anyway, so I, I try and cover that as best I can in Food Editor in a, you know, I'm only one person sort of way. But I definitely, I can, you know, I came back to that. You can't, you know, it's hard to carry a website around uh, in your glove compartment. You know, in theory, it's on your phone, but everything's on your phone, which means any one thing is just sort of lost in the vastness of the internet. Well, what's a, what's a way to get people interested in, you know, drive them toward the most interesting things on a regular basis. Well, that's when I got to thinking about, well, I should do a guidebook. I should do a big fat guidebook with every restaurant on earth. No, that just seemed like a, a miserable prospect of spending an enormous amount of money eating things you didn't really want to eat so you could then spend even more time writing about them. And that's where I came to this idea of the Food Editor 99. Um, John, I'll admit I stole that from Jonathan Gold, the LA food critic. He has the, the 101 every year in uh, the uh, LA Times. And uh, I figured, you know, 99, that's almost as many as LA. Uh, but, you know, just focus on what are the best things right now? What's interesting right now? No sense of permanence to it. I mean, I, I definitely did not want to do the thing that every guidebook feels the need to do, which is start at the most expensive places. Well, you got to have Alinea, you got to have Grace, you got to have Blackbird, and sort of work down that. Instead, I wanted a more idiosyncratic choice of what would be interesting to go out and check out. And then I wanted to cover lots of other kinds of food. I wanted taco joints. I wanted pizza. I wanted, you know, South American, you know, the best South American chicken place to get a roasted chicken. Um, Chinese food. There's so much going on in Chinatown right now. And it's another thing that I think has only been moderately well written about compared to how much activity there is down there. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to do something that would cover all those things and it wouldn't discriminate between them. It wouldn't have Great restaurants followed by cheap eats, it would just mix them all together. And, you know, the, the best, you know, the best Indian place, which is Khan Barbecue, by the way, uh, would come right in between two downtown restaurants, possibly. Uh, or I would kind of surreptitiously do kind of themed places, places that grilled stuff over live fire would tend to be clumped together. Does that mean that's really the 22nd best and that's the 23rd best? There's no way to know that. There's no way to quantify that. So that's all kind of a put on. But, but make it interesting to go through the book and see, see what was where. And so I did that last year. It worked pretty well. And uh, I have a new edition that just came out recently. Um, just in time for one of the restaurants to lose the chef and all the menu items that I described. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. I was pleased at least the first edition stayed pretty accurate till at least summer. Then places started dropping like flies. But uh, 
you know, it's, it goes back to that, that same ambition they had all along. You know, tell me where to go, tell me a couple things to try so I'm not completely lost when I go in there. And, it, you know, and I, and I can discover it, I can learn a little bit, I can get a little more access to other parts of the city that I would never meet. I mean, I've never known a Thai person in advertising in Chicago, but I've met lots of Thai people at Thai restaurants now. And, uh, you know, just that, that kind of thing. It's what brings us together in a city. There's no more easy access point for people in a city to meet each other's cultures than over food. It's just what humans do. So uh, this is my, my guide to meeting other humans in Chicago. Um, it's on Amazon. Yeah, I should talk about... Um, the whole self-publishing part of this. I decided I wanted to self-publish through CreateSpace, which is not, I, I don't quite understand their relationship with Amazon. It, they're very, they seem to be tight with each other, or at least to work well together. But basically, I laid out the book myself, and then I just submit the files, and you get it printed to order uh, when you order a copy. What was really valuable about this to me, I mean, a lot of what I do is about, I don't have to go through some other person to do it anymore. I don't have to go through an editor. I don't have to sell it. You know, I have to find an agent who then pitches it to publishers, yeah, and they come back with their own dumb ideas of how it should be different when it's already perfect the way I thought about it. And uh, instead, I could just bang it out, put it together myself, you know, proficient enough at layout that it's reasonably attractive. And uh, <clears throat> the huge advantage of this, if you turn in a book to a publisher, you know, you turn it in in like June or possibly February for it to come out at Christmas. And they just sit on things for so long. I don't even know where all that time goes. But it just, it takes forever and ever. And the problem with that, with anything that's, a, that's like a guidebook, is just that things will become untrue that are in the book in a, in a very quick time. And there's, a, there's another book, there's a series in different cities called Unique Eats and Eateries that another food writer in town named Matt Kerouac wrote the Chicago edition. And the day the book came out, four places in it were already closed. And that's just, it's just feel bad for him, you know? <laughs> it's just sad that it works out that way. So literally, I made the last changes to this on, on a Sunday a couple of weeks ago, and on Monday it was available on Amazon. So it really is much more like newspaper or magazine publishing. You know, you close the issue on Tuesday and it's at the newsstand on Friday. So, um, but yeah, through Amazon, I'm gonna talk to some bookstores they tend to have a prejudice against self-published books for fairly obvious reasons that they are often books that you couldn't have sold to a publisher. I hope a few local bookstores will see that it just is a, a work of quality and local interest um, and will get over the fact that they're basically giving a certain amount of money to you know the evil Amazon, their enemy. Um, but it just, to me, there were so many advantages for this kind of book. I mean, if I was writing something else, I might not do it this way because you want the traditional uh, structure of the publishing industry and how things work. But for something like this, it really is kind of an expanded magazine article. It just seemed a logical way to approach it. And 
again, I'm, I'm in control of all these factors of it. It comes out exactly how I want it, so. Anybody else? Questions? How to become a food writer? How to make the big bucks? Yes? Well, I deliberately wanted to change a lot, so there'd be a reason to get the, the second edition. Obviously, a lot of new places open. A certain number of, new, of old places closed. Uh, and there's a small number of places that I went back to and they just weren't as good as they had been or whatever. But also I just wanted to shake it up. Like a magazine article, you want some novelty in there and it's very much oriented, again, as I said, not to some locked in stone, these are the best restaurants in the city, but more like, what, what am I excited about right now? If you came to me and said, yeah, hey, where should I go for this? You know, what would I be jazzed to tell you about? So I kind of looked at it that way. And in the end, it's about one-third entirely new entries. And I think it gets up to about 50% where I substantially rewrote something based on having gone there a new time and things like that. So, yes. Well, they just have to order it from Amazon. And it's all print to order. So however many people order, Amazon makes that many and sends them out. So... Um, that's, you know, that's, that's the advantage and the disadvantage at the same time in that it's not somewhere you can run out and pick it up generally. But uh, on the whole, I mean, it seems, it seems a, a compromise worth experimenting with. So much of this is just about, you know, let's see how this works now. This is a new thing. Let's see how it works. Yes. You know, it really varies. There are some where I've only been once. Uh, and they're not like the long Phil Vitell reviews. A lot of places I feel like, I mean, you can sum up in three lines or so what's good about a fairly modest, you know, ethnic food place or whatever, and then tell people a few things to order, and that's kind of what you need. So I don't, I don't fetishize, you have to do this many times, you have to cover all these things. It's whatever seems appropriate to it. They're up front where it tends to be kind of the more higher profile, more talk about restaurants, I do go on longer. And those are pretty much based on multiple visits and uh, having gone fairly recently. I mean, there's nothing in there that I haven't been to for five years, that kind of thing. I mean, I want it to be within the last couple of years, so. Not TripAdvisor. Uh, I honestly never look at that for Chicago. I've used it elsewhere. Um, I, the only thing I'd say I'm really in, influenced by is some of the other reviewers in Chicago who, you know, I mean, we're all kind of, we all kind of like similar things. I mean, I see what Sula and Nagrant and Anthony Todd at Chicagoist were saying about stuff, and they see what I'm saying about stuff. So there's definitely feedback there. Gary. I, I want to take you back uh, 10 Yes. And I wonder how you see what happened to that and where has it gone? Why is it much less than it was? Well, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And you know, was part 
repeat the question. He was asking about, you know, LTH Forum and Chowhan before were really built on this idea of a community, people getting together and trying these things together. And I think that leads to one of the big points about it. Even if you didn't meet in person, the feedback on these things was so fast. You know, you could ask a question on Monday, and by Friday, you you were a local expert on handmade tortillas in Mexican restaurants, because you'd get so much information from so many people, and you'd know exactly where to go to try, you know, what they were like in different places. But another, you know, the other big part of it was this social aspect, and for a while, LTH was really as a you know, sort of defined community, a certain number of people who pretty much knew each other at events. Um, and there came a time when that just sort of broke up, you know, the band broke up. And I'm, I'm not gonna go into the specific personality things, but I think one of the things that fed that also was when LTH started, or Chahan was going, they were kind of the only thing like that where you could talk about it on the internet. And then we had Facebook, and we had Twitter, and all these other forms of social media appear. I mean, really, it was, an, it was early social media. And once those were out there, the idea of moderating me at LTH didn't mean anything when I could just go on Twitter and say it anyway. And I'm following the people I want to follow and not following the people I don't want to follow. So I think it's sort of fragmented and you, you sort of make your social group every day to some extent on some of these other things. And it doesn't, it definitely doesn't have the, the feeling that it had in the mid 2000s where, you know, someone could just propose at 11.15 in the morning, hey, let's all meet at this Thai restaurant, and eight people would show up. I mean, that was a kind of a unique circumstance, partly that so many of us were freelance, so we could just go and do that, you know, when it happened, whatever, whatever we did, you know, we were in charge of our own time. And and it was also just kind of the the mania of that moment that we you know we all wanted to go out and and try all these things um and it's just kind of a moment in at least in my life that's sort of passed but still parts of it exist yeah i think you have to make it for yourself in a much more ad hoc way and so it doesn't happen as much there's no question of that um an interesting thing that was uh going to bring up the that Gary has a, a tiny part in actually um, someone wrote me a kid who was just getting out of college I think wrote me to ask me how you become a food critic and I have a long history of scaring people out of careers I think in the advertising people would ask me you know how do I how do I become a you know, a, a writer or an art director in an ad agency. And I kind of tell them the truth about it, and I think they went off and found something else to do with their lives at that point. Um, but this, this kid writes me, I don't, <clears throat> how do I become a critic? And, you know, I think it's like, how do, how do I find the job where I get to pontificate about food and it's paid for by someone else? Uh, I get both the salary and the you know, the, the expense is covered. And it's like, well, it kind of barely exists anymore, um, is answer number one. But what I really said was, so which of his former employees do you think better carries on Charlie Trotter's legacy? Matthias Murgis, Beverly Kim, John and Karen Shields, or Gi Giuseppe Tentore? 
I ask that because to my mind, the sort of thing, it's the sort of thing that a good critic in Chicago should be able to answer based on personal experience. If you didn't make it to Charlie Totter's before he closed and died, well, you can't help that. But to me, reviewing is something of a responsibility. People who may not go out much are looking to you for the recommendation to go to, to spend money that may matter a fair amount to them, a once in a year amount at least, to celebrate something that also matters to them. Do you know enough to be able to give those recommendations with confidence? Have you been to enough places to tell people things? So, you know, it's, it's something I take seriously. The irony is that when uh, Charlie Trotter announced he was closing, I felt that I didn't know enough about Charlie Trotter to uh, write something lengthy at Grub Street. So I conned Gary into writing a two-part article for me about what Charlie Trotter meant and, and all of that. So besides, besides needing to know all these things, you just need a certain amount of guile and ingenuity to... Uh, you know, con your way through any assignment you're given. But uh, that, uh, you know, it is something, and I, finally, and I said to her, I mean, the, the night, if, you know, I felt it would be, be important to offer her some degree of hope. So I, I said, uh, you know, you, better than reviewing, you should try reporting and see what, you know, find a story. It's okay not to know everything when you report a story because it's, Part of the process is finding out. And you'll also build up your own knowledge along the way. And if you want to pitch me at Fooditor, you know, go for it. I will, you know, I'll take seriously the, you know, your idea. If I buy it, I'll edit it seriously and give suggestions and all that. Never heard from this person again. She's probably, you know, applying to uh, schools to become a, you know, a botanist or something at this point. But... You know, I think the question is why focus on food, um, you know, with all the things that are happening in the world. To me, like I said before, food is always the gateway. It's the opening point of where cultures meet. It's, you know, it's the nice little gesture uh, that initiates any sort of friendly interaction. Um, so it's just interesting culturally in so many ways. It has so many ways that it says things about who we are. And, you know, most, I, I think if you look at Fooditor, you could make the case that most stories are about something besides the specific food at hand. They're, you know, they're about parents passing on a business. They're about coming from another country and starting your business here. They're about personally refining what you do and, you know, figuring out what you want to do in life. I mean, so many of the conversations I have with chefs are, you know, I was, I was 16 and I was, you know, working in the grill at the country club and then I went to college to become a psychologist and I decided I liked the grill at the country club more than becoming a psychologist, so I went back to cooking. You know, it's just that, that sort of personal life journey to me can be very interesting. So, I don't know, I just find, you know, it's obviously food is about as common to humanity as any subject could possibly be and it has so many different aspects to it that it for me it never runs out of areas of interest that it it reveals something about people in society well it's interesting because i mean as long as i've been eating in chicago i don't you know i feel like i'm i'm in a fairly 
you know, I sort of arrived as a writer fairly late in the day. Uh, you know, if you're asking about, I mean, Alan here has, has a whole website uh, quite fascinating about the evolution of French food in Chicago. And I pretty much come in at the tail end of that, if I come in at all. Um, I, although I, as honest God, as, as a teenager, I, I read the article in Esquire about Le Francais being the, the best restaurant in the world, but it wasn't one of the places I came to when I came to Chicago to check out food here. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of that has passed by. I've certainly seen some of those things happen. We've, we've definitely, and I think to some extent we played a part in this, um, you kind of had the the molecular gastronomy manipulation of food era around the time that things like LTH form were getting started. And now we've shifted, I think, to more, I would say, kind of more honesty with ingredients, maybe cooking more naturally and, and less affectedly. And maybe we played a certain part in that by prizing various kinds of authenticity. I mean, one place I'd, I'd really point to it is like, any, where do chefs go to eat after a shift? Can anyone tell me, what do they eat? What do they all eat? PB, yeah, PBR, really. Asian food, the answer is they eat Asian food. They go, because the Chinese restaurants are still serving at 2 a.m. or the sushi at Paradise Sauna, they have sushi at Paradise Sauna and then have a sauna, you know, whatever. They all loved Asian food and that was kind of a secret and you certainly didn't see it come into their food in their restaurants in like 2007. And I think focusing so much on Asian food in Chicago allowed that to kind of come out of the closet a bit and come out and be, you know, they admitted that they liked putting fish sauce in stuff or, you know, seeing the, you know, more chilies in something or whatever. And now you have, you know, somebody like Andrew Zimmerman, whose first restaurant is fundamentally sort of French-Italian sepia. His second one is, you know, is full of Asian flavors from Thailand and Vietnam and India and all kinds of places like that, proxies. So um, I think in some ways maybe, you know, goosed that move toward getting back to more authenticity along. You know, that said, I mean, the big change from Steakhouse Chicago, as it was such a cliche in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, to where we are now, we are just kind of, you know, this whole period is just sort of the, the tail end of that. And that was one thing I, I wanted to, I brought along a couple of things that I've published, and one of them, um, was this piece for En Route, which is Air Canada's magazine. And I also, uh, it's also apparently really the food magazine in Canada, because there really isn't anything else, the major food publication. So I d they recruited me to do a piece on where to go in Chicago right now. And the first thing I said to them was, I'm not gonna write an opening paragraph that says, Chicago land of steaks and deep dish pizza also actually knows how to eat with forks now. You know, that I, that I would, would in, you know, that it's like we can take that for granted. Charlie Trotter opened his restaurant 30 some years ago. It's old news that we, you know, that we have a more sophisticated scene with that and we don't need to 
start by invoking ancient cliches. So I won that fight anyway. So you know, it's it's an interesting idea. I think because of the way. I mean, I think a lot of these places evolve, so there's something new to say about a lot of them year after year. Um, and I like, you know, and they're places that I'm still excited about. So I, I feel it would be a shame to toss out a lot of those things that had been in last year's. I don't know that it, that it would be as good, a, it wouldn't be as good a guide if I completely replaced all of them. It would have a lot of interesting different things in it, but I'd definitely be dipping into the second and third tier more to be able to fill it out. I mean, I think things will evolve on and off the list naturally, I hope, I guess. I don't know, you know, I can only go by the, the experience of doing it twice so far, but that seems to be how it kind of feels to me. Do it, I'll, t I'll, help, you. I'll help you figure out how to na navigate self-publishing. I mean, and that's one of the things too, is I mean, I try to encourage people to do their own thing. I'd love to see other people adopt this and somebody put out, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't write about cocktails and things like that much because I just, you know, I grew up in Kansas during the time when people drank 3-2 beer and pina coladas. So I just have never, I'm no, I'm no cocktail expert and someone should do a cocktail book. They would be great, you know, a great bar guide, but I don't intend to go to bars enough to write one. So, I mean, I try to a bit, um, you know, the question is going beyond just, you know, go here because it's a good restaurant and write more about the scene, the soci sociological aspects of it. I mean, I try to work that in to a, to a fair extent, I think. Um, why other people don't do it, I don't know. I mean, it's some of it is just there's a lot of young people who don't know anything else who are writing on the food scene. And you, you know, you have to have a certain amount of background to, you know, to, to be able to see the difference over time, so. All right, well, there's an interesting subject I didn't go into. One of the things that really dispirits me about food writing is so much of it is list-based now, which is okay if the lists are any good, but they're often clearly just generated by people doing Google searches. And sometimes it's, it's quite obvious that someone doesn't know what they're talking about. There was one that about a year ago where someone listed like the 10 best you know, tasting menus in town. And there was a whole big long thing about Moto. And what they didn't realize was that the chef of Moto was dead by then. And talking about him in the present tense proved that you had no idea what was going on. It's not like that was a small story. So, you know, somebody who lives in, you know, Boston or San Francisco was pulling together a list for, uh, you know, for Chicagoans and it was, it was bull. It was, you know, I mean, really to me, it's, it's sad that these kind of publications are essentially teaching a lack of journalism ethics to young writers. You know, this is the assignment you get. You're gonna get 50 bucks to write about places. Oh, you're gonna go try them all? That would be $10,000. No, you're obviously not gonna try any of them. You, and besides, your deadline is tomorrow at three anyway. So you just, you know, cobble together words off the internet. That ought to be an ethical violation. If that was to happen at the Tribune, you would be fired for it. Instead, it's the rules of the game. It's the only way to get that check. And I think that's really, 
that's really dispiriting. And I see a lot of that kind of stuff online. And you, maybe it has some relation to reality. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? But it just is... I mean, it's really unfortunate. And so when I wanted to do a list, you know, I, I'm, I used to do some lists for thrillists, and I was really serious about giving them a photo for every place I wrote about. Why? Because if my photo credit is on the photo, it proves I actually went there. And I think that's kind of important. So, yes. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I don't, I have nothing against blogging per se. I think the informality has often been good for writers, but so many of these things, yeah, there's just this pressure to produce so much content and no one cares if it really has quality. It's just, it's just clickbait. And I think that's, that's really unfortunate. Um, all right, I'm, I'm smelling, you've got all your, there's ice cream sitting there. Thank you. And, By the way, I'd like to show our website. The, I would say the visual influence was his. He, yes, he, those are actually the dining in Chicagoland graphics uh, at the top of the, the web page. But he put it together and, and he went with it. Yeah. Really, it was about as stylish as well. I, you know, I'm a what you, what you see is what you get. I would not be stylish, and he knows how to make things stylish. So today we have, um, Joan, what do you got? Um, I Okay, and why don't you jump, 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 jump. Oh, tell um, what you did. So this was a, a store that used to exist in Northbrook called Unique Accents, and every Christmas or holiday season they would put out this cookie, and it's a chocolate chip butter cookie, and they would always give the recipe. So. And we'll put the recipe on the website. And then the last item, okay, O&H, I offended people, but it's from Kenosha, Wisconsin, not Chicago. But it's O&H Bakery. It's a cranberry bar that they put out every winter or around Christmas time, and they, they put the recipe on a newspaper article, and I grabbed it. Um, and then I brought Chicago brick ice cream. Um, it used to be, we, Peter Angler sent me an ad from the, like the 1930s, and it was a Borden's product. It's orange sherbet, caramel ice cream, and vanilla ice cream. There's also an ad from the 1950s, he said, that was from Dean's. I guess Borden bought Dean's or whatever, Dean's bought Borden, whatever happened. And it's the same ice cream. And it was something that somebody had mentioned recently and nobody knew what they were talking about. And then I was over at Woodman's in Kenosha recently and they had a sale, two of them for $5.50. And I said, I'll bring it to a meeting. So that's it. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. We'll see you next year. And I have books. Books are $6.99. And I learned yesterday how to charge on my phone so we can do that, or I have cash. Uh, to make change for your cash, and I'll sign them however you like.